I'd like to start. I just I just was on a course in Jungian therapy, and I'd like to start with a little quote by Carl Jung. The only things that we experience immediately are the contents of consciousness. In saying this, I'm not attempting to reduce the world into our ideas of it. What I'm trying to emphasize could be expressed from another point of view, saying, life is a function of the carbon atom. This analogy <coughs> Excuse me, reveals the limit limitations of the specialist point of view, and this is Jung speaking, to which I succumb as soon as I attempt to say <coughs> anything explanatory about the world or even a part of it. So, that's pretty good. Self-effacing. Um, I must say that, that I've been fascinated with consciousness and experience and the process of experiencing for a long, long time. Um, are any of you uh, programmers? Anybody understand code? Okay. So. This is code. I'm just going to scroll down a bit. Can you see? Everybody can see this. It just keeps going and going and going. So there's a reason for doing this. And this is the reason. That's Alice. Mm -hmm. Some of you know about Alice. Mm -hmm. Okay. All that code created this picture. Okay. So, this picture in your minds is the result of some kind of coding in your nervous system, in your brain, that allows you to experience this as an image. But we don't think about that. We don't want to think about that. It's way too complicated. We'd rather just look at the picture. <coughs> so, Alice is quite happy. Um, there are all kinds of ways of looking at the world. Uh, Jung had one very com complex way of looking at the world and what we are. Um, there's also something called biocentrism, biocentrism, and there's a book called Biocentrism, How Life and Consciousness are the Keys to Understanding the Nature of the Universe, the name of the book, by Bob Berman and Robert Landman, and I'd like to read you a little bit of that. Uh, the first principle of biocentrism is what we perceive as reality is a process that involves our consciousness. Okay. 
This begins with the description of a bright yellow candle flame, which is essentially a hot gas emitting photons or tiny packets of waves of electromagnetic energy. He says, it is easy to recall from everyday experience that neither electricity nor magnetism have visual properties. So on its own, it's not hard to grasp that there is nothing inherently visual, nothing bright or colored about that candle flame. <coughs> now let these same invisible electromagnetic waves strike a human retina, and if, and only if, the waves each happen to measure between 400 and 700 nanometers, billionths of a meter, in length from crest to crest, then their energy is just right to deliver a stimulus to the 8 million cone-shaped cells in the retina. Each in turn sends an electrical pulse to a neighbor neuron. And on up the line this goes at 250 miles an hour until it reaches the warm, wet occipital lobe of the brain in the back of the head. There is a cascading complex of neurons firing from the incoming, sti incoming stimuli and we subjectively perceive the experience as a yellow brightness occurring in a place we have been conditioned to call the external world. Other creatures receiving the identical stimulus will experience something altogether different, such as a perception of gray, or even have an entirely dissimilar sensation. The point is, there isn't a bright yellow light out there at all. At most, there is an invisible stream of electrical and magnetic impulses. We are totally necessary for the experience of what we call a yellow flame. So, you know, that, that, that old philosophical saying, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, does it actually do that? Um, I've been talking about ideas like this for a long, long time. And these things, these ideas are becoming more available in the world. Um, seeing Alice and understanding what's behind that possibility of seeing her on the screen. And even if, even if she's not here, but she's in front of me, there's still that same kind of process going on. Okay. Um, there was a, an exhibition at the AGO called Mystical Landscapes. I don't know if any of you saw it. It's fantastic. So many ways of looking at the world, at what we are. Um, there was one that was done a series of paintings of exactly the same little landscape thing. And I think there were 20 of them with all just a slightly different color and tone, shade, right? And they're all the same in, in a row. You just walk by and oh my God. Um, it was quite fascinating. Uh, unfortunately, um, I got 
my ticket for the last day. I didn't want to miss the show altogether. But if I'd gotten it earlier, I would have gone back many times because it was just so fascinating. Uh, and they sold out of all the catalogs, I guess, a couple of weeks before. So uh, they're, they're saying that maybe they'll, they'll get more in at some time in the future. But there is a very large painting called A Decorative Landscape by Lauren Harris. And it, it sort of blew my mind because, I mean, I, I've, I've studied art, I've been a graphic artist for years in the past, and all that I understood about color sort of went down the tube looking at this painting. And this is the painting. And I don't know if anybody sees what I see, but for me, the blue is brighter than the yellow. And I have no idea why, why that should be. It shouldn't be, according to the theory that I've learned. Right? But for me, that, that blue is just glowing. Okay. So, I, I, I thought about that and tried to figure out why I, I see that, why that should be. And in the theory of color vision, there, there are rods and cones. If, if you remember back to grade school when you took it in health. And, and the rods register intensity of light, right? And so they're just black to white. And their best functioning is in dim light situations. But people who are completely colorblind, in other words, have no cones in their eyes, have apparently incredibly acute perception, visual perception, of whatever they're looking at. They see more detail than those people who have color vision. So there are three kinds of cones in the retina, and they're different sizes. And the, the one size, the largest, gets the red, um, the middle size is green, and the smallest is blue. And, and those three colors make up 80 million colors that we can differentiate between average, unless you're colorblind, of course, and that doesn't count. But the idea is that, that those little cones are stimulating the retina, <coughs> and, and blue has its own pathway whereas yellow is a mixture of red and green in, in terms of light theory. And so you're using two pathways to get that same information of yellow and just one for the blue. So maybe that's why I'm seeing the blue more intensely. Did anybody else notice that, that the blue <coughs> seems brighter than the yellow? Yes? Yeah. Oh, yay, I'm not alone. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, so that might be the reason why. I have, I have a friend who, well, red is supposed to be the most stimulating color. Okay? So if you buy a sports car, never buy a red sports car, because the police will notice you more than anything else on the road. 
right? But my friend finds red boring. She likes blue. And she has uh, blue paintings in her house. She has blue stained glass in her windows. She has blue clothes. She has a blue car, right? So for some reason, blue to her is, is really outstanding. And in that picture, definitely is for me too. So I, I just, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe there are more of those smaller cones, the blue cones, in her eyes than all the others. That could be, I don't know. I, I mentioned a, a psychiatrist in the States, Milton Erickson, who could only see the color purple. I, I mentioned that before. Um, but to me, that's fascinating. And he was really excited by purple. Everything else was grayscale. So if something was purple, that was really fun. So, like my friend with the blue, he had purple clothes, he had a purple car, people <laughs> gave him purple gifts. Purple <laughs> Exactly. So, that means that, that the blue and the red go together to make up the color purple. Okay. So, blue and red were functioning, except he couldn't see blue or red, he only saw purple. We're, we're victims of the technology that is our nervous systems. <laughs> um, we're, we're, we are herd animals, right? We, we need, we're social. And that's, that's really good, apparently. Groups of animals that are social are more intelligent than, than those that live alone. So, we're social, we like to communicate. But we have this weird thing where we think everybody experiences what we experience. That we live in the same world. And we don't. Our nervous systems create a different impression of the world according to how they're structured. Right? Whether, whether you see yellow or blue brighter. Um, I, when, when I was in high school, I was in a boarding school, a boys' school, and at one point my roommate had no sense of pain. Not just then, all his life, but he was unique. And it was a boys' school, so we would get into fights and everything. Nobody would fight Campbell, right? Because you'd have to kill him to win. He couldn't feel pain. You couldn't hurt him. So everybody just stayed clear of him. <laughs> and fortunately, he was a really nice guy, so it wasn't a big issue. But um, If you tried to explain pain to somebody that couldn't experience pain, presumably that you, you know what the experience is, how would you do it? You know, if, if you tried to explain the color blue to a person who'd been blind from birth, what would you do? What would you say? In philosophy, there's, there's, there's a word called qualia, and it's the gap between the experience and the description of it. So we can never explain what we experience 
completely, so that somebody else can have that same experience. And we will never know if anybody else is experiencing the world the way we are. And yet, we expect them to be doing the same thing. We expect that everybody else is seeing the world the way we are. And if they do something that's a mistake to us, we say, dummy, why did you do that? Well, that's their orientation in that particular moment. And, and our lives aren't static. Consciousness flows. The things that come into consciousness come and go. You know, you feel maybe really wonderful here in this lovely place. You go out and, and almost get hit by a car, chances are this nice, calm feeling is going to disappear really quickly, and you'll be experiencing something entirely different. Whatever goes on in your mind is incredibly complex. Like we were just talking about visual, but then you're hearing and you're tasting and you're touching and you're smelling. And all kinds of things are impacting all at once. I mean, the, the visual thing is incredibly complex. But if you put them all together, and then you have ideas, and then you have memories, and then you have, you know, what everybody else is inputting in terms of their thoughts, how do we do that? We're just amazing. I think if we go back to the picture of Alice, right, it's the electromagnetic field that allows us to experience that picture. Without the electromagnetic field, there would be no picture, um, there'd be no laptop, there'd be no programmers, there'd probably be no us. Right? And yet, who is aware of the electromagnetic field? other than the odd physicist who has numerical representations of what that might be. We don't experience the field in ourselves. We have a person 2,500 years ago who said, I'm awake. He was awake to the field, the field of awareness. Awareness is consciousness. Awareness is pure creative intelligence. It's pure being, pure existence, pure compassion and love. And everything manifests from it as vibrations, just like in the electromagnetic field. The picture of Alice was the field vibrating. Run out of here and you turn on your cell phone right away, and that's the electromagnetic field vibrating. Right? The whole range of possibilities, the color spectrum, and then and infrared, and, and ultraviolet, and x-rays, and, and microwaves, and, and gamma rays, and, and it just goes on and on and on, and our technology doesn't, doesn't find an end to the, to the spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum of, of wave frequency. So we live in a really tiny, and, and the visual spectrum is, is like if the, the big spectrum is the size of the room, the visual part of it is only like this big. Right? 
it's really tiny, this world that we live in, that's represented visually to us. So, I mean, basically, we need to wake up to that deeper reality of ourselves. That's what the Buddha taught. Like he, he spent most of his life traveling, walking around India. He didn't have cars, obviously. So he walked all over India and Nepal, that whole area, teaching that there is this Buddha nature in all of us. And it's just the depth of our perception that determines whether we appreciate the deepest level or just the surface. And, and for us, our, our focus is mostly on the surface of life. And whether everything is working right, and, and you know, what person that I friended has to say, whether they've unfriended me. Oh my God! Right. And and we just we live our lives very superficially, and we come to the temple and we meditate, and it it brings us to that deeper level. This gives us the option, the opportunity, of experiencing the deeper aspect of what we are. So, I think, I think to end this, I think I need to end this, it's been going on. Um, I'd like, I have three more quotes that's short. The first is from the Chicago Zen master, Charlotte Joko Beck. She passed away? I don't know. Um, it seems like somebody said that. Anyway, she said, there is nothing other than this present moment. There is no past, there is no future, there is nothing but this. So when we don't pay attention to each little this, we miss the whole thing. And there's so much in each little this, it's just amazing. Um, the second is from the Canadian artist Emily Carr. She said, when you really think about your hand, you begin to realize its connection, to sense the hum of your own being passing through it. When we look at any piece of the universe, we should feel the same. And the last is from the Buddhist teacher Andrew Olensky. Every moment is a unique view of a unique territory both of which unfold in perpetual motion. Because of the continual flux of it all, holding on to anything that has happened is futile, while being open to what happens next is crucial. So when you leave here, be aware of what's happening and what's coming. <coughs> 